Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Wednesday Bible study, May the 17th in the year of our Lord, 2023. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we like listening and learning about God's Word from the book of Proverbs right now on Wednesdays. But before I read something from the book of Proverbs, I want to read another passage from John chapter 20. This is after the disciples have seen the Lord on the first Sunday of Easter. And they tell Thomas about it, who wasn't with them. And he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Then verse 25 of John 20, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, if I was doing a Bible class on this passage, how much would not be understood by the people listening to it? They would realize that Thomas wasn't there on the first appearance of Jesus on Easter Sunday night. He said, I'll never believe unless I can touch him. Then the following week, he is present, and he sees Jesus and believes him, referring to him as my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, which of course would refer to all of us. Now, what is so hard to understand about those verses? You can do a sermon on it, uh, talking about the apostle, first one, whoever referred to Jesus as God, or you can talk about the importance of faith. You, You can talk a lot about it, But the text itself is pretty self-explanatory. There's not much you need to do. How different is that text from John, from Proverbs chapter 20? We're going to begin with verse 25 and go through verse 30, which is really an important verse. And guess what? In preparation for teaching that in a Bible study, Proverbs 20, 25 to 30, as I read through the verses, I did not know what Solomon was talking about. What? No. When when John talks about Jesus and Thomas, everybody knows what John is talking about. No, nobody denies that Thomas wasn't there, then he was there, then he believed. 
But when you look at the book of Proverbs, the statements in Proverbs are really hard to understand by a lay person, even in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, because it takes pastors to teach what these passages mean. Yes, it's one thing for a pastor to explain in the New Testament what the Greek says or in the Old Testament what the Hebrew says or elsewhere what the Aramaic says. But the real task of a pastor is to explain what the English says, the English translations. And the problem is, is that we don't have a full Bible like in the New Testament, a a Greek New Testament, until the 16th century. Up to that time, all the translations, if there were any, were from manuscripts, hundreds of manuscripts. And they differ in a lot of areas. So when you take a look at something like Proverbs, it's really difficult to know at times what Solomon meant until you do some study in the Hebrew and the grammar and taking a look at the context. That's why you do need a pastor, not only to help you understand the Hebrew and the Greek, but also the English. So let's take a look. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25. It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. Now, I'm in a Bible study. I've got members who have been confirmed, a whole bunch of them. And I ask people, what does that verse mean? And hardly anybody knows what it means. And those who attempt to give a suggestion are normally wrong. That's why you need a pastor. It is a snare to say rashly it is holy. Now, when you take a look at the original language, Another way of translating it to help us understand is God is saying it is a trap to say impulsively it is holy. Now, what's God talking about here? What trap do we fall into? This is a warning against making hasty vows to God. Now, what is a hasty vow? Let's say you have some kind of problem. You get a phone call and hear that one of your children, they were in a car accident and it was serious and you're rushing to the hospital and you make a vow to God, God, if my child is alive, I promise to go to church every Sunday. That is making an impulsive vow to God. What, what do you think? That 
you can persuade God to do something by making a promise. This is not only a warning against hasty vows to God, it also is a warning about not breaking the second commandment. What's the second commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, I often wondered what did in vain mean? And I came up with the idea before the new translations that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God for a purpose of which he has not provided. That's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now you see this on movies all the time. It's unfortunate you go to YouTube and you want to see a detective movie and you really got to go and look at old ones uh, that were done in the 60s and 70s because the new ones start off with a lot of swearing and using the name of God in vain. And so this is a wonderful passage from God. How is it a trap to impulsively say, well, this is holy. This is something I'm vowing to make. Because the second part of the verse says, and to reflect only after making vows. What does reflect only mean? It means to reconsider. So on the one hand, you make a vow to follow God, to attend church, to read the Bible, to pray a lot. And then later on, you reconsider after everything has worked out all right. And you reconsider the vow that you made and decide not to follow it. It's kind of like New Year's Eve resolutions. How many New Year's resolutions do people make and then they keep? May last for a week or two, but that's about it. And so God is saying, be careful what you vow. If you are impulsive, you could be following into a trap by the devil himself to use the name of God in a way that is against the second commandment. And after making an impulsive vow, you reconsider it and say, no, I really didn't mean it. This is taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Verse two, try and figure out what this one means. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. What is that talking about? This is why you need a pastor who's trained at the seminary for years and perhaps has got the ability to discover what all this means. You see, when you go to the seminary, you just don't learn what verses are saying, but you're getting the interpretation of the verse. Remember on the road to Emmaus, the disciples who were questioning Jesus, even though they didn't know it was him, about why he didn't know about the crucifixion, and then they heard about this resurrection. 
They were totally confused. And then Jesus goes on to explain to them the reason for the crucifixion and the resurrection. He does not use human reason. Human reason is never the way to help a person become a Christian. Instead, he uses the Bible. He quotes Old Testament verses again and again. And the disciples begin to understand, look at this Jesus fulfilled all of these promises in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And their heart beats with joy within them. And this is before they recognize that it is Jesus with whom they are speaking. And they run back and they tell the apostles, they all rejoice that Jesus has risen from the dead. But what does this mean? A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Well, you need a pastor who has been trained in the culture of the day of Solomon. What would winnowing the wicked refer to? Well, this was an agricultural community. And the word winnow, which is W-I-N-N-O-W-S, a wise king winnows out the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Well, this is talking about how a threshing wheel would be rolled over shocks of grain to force off the seed and separate the seed. Now, we now have John Deere and other implements that do that. I still haven't figured this out. I, I watch it on YouTube. I love watching these wonderful farm machinery. And here's this huge machine going through corn stalks. And it looks like it's running over the corn stalks. But then when you see what it's doing, it's separating the kernels of the corn from the cob and putting them into a container in that machine or shooting them into a wagon that's going along beside. I, I have no idea what the mechanism is within the machine to do that. But Solomon is using the mechanism of his day where a wise king would winnow out the wicked. That means he would separate the wicked from the good by driving the wheel over them. And that was that rolling threshing wheel that they would roll over shocks of grain to force off the seed. This is something that Jesus, of course, picks up in the division of the righteous from the unrighteous. Uh, the best example for that would be Matthew 25, his parable of the sheep and the goats. There, Jesus divides the sheep from the goats. And he doesn't do it on the basis of their works, although it sounds like that. 
but he's doing it on the basis of their motivation, which is behind their works. For example, the sheep visit people in prison. They may feed the hungry, clothe the naked, house the homeless, but so do unbelievers do those things. So why aren't unbelievers going to heaven? Because it is not the work that you do that gets you to heaven, but the motivation that is the faith behind the work. Christians do works out of love for Jesus Christ. You do hundreds of works every month that you are unaware of as a Christian that unbelievers never do, never think, never say because they are separate from Jesus. And, and that's the goal of the church is to bring them into the family of God. That's why what I love doing best is called adult instruction classes where people have an interest in what the church is saying to comfort them in their grief, in their sorrow, in their problems. So they come to adult instruction and what they learn is they can do nothing to solve their problems. But Jesus Christ has done everything. And, and that's what a, at times 16 week course in adult instruction does. It shares how God uses the commandments, the creed, the Lord's prayer, baptism and the Lord's supper, as well as discipline in the congregation to bring people to a right knowledge of Jesus Christ. And therefore, at times, a wise king, a wise pastor, or even a president or senator or a congressman of the United States is to winnow out the wicked by ro rolling a threshing wheel over the people to force off the good seed. Verse 27, here's another, when you read it, what does it mean? The spirit of man is a lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Well, what has that got to do with us today? Well, when you take a look at the original Hebrew, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. That word lamp is the word used for the light that is shining in the tabernacle of God. Remember, Jesus is the light of the world. And the tabernacle did have a lamp. And this is the word. It means the presence of God. So the spirit of man originally was quite sinful. But then when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you receive a new heart, a new spirit. It's called the new man. And what is that? That is the lamp of the Lord. Remember how Adam was created? 
God breathed into man the life of the world. And therefore, that lamp, namely your new spirit, is able to search all your inner post, innermost parts. Now, actually, the Hebrew says, searching all the chambers of your belly. Now, a lot of translators, of course, change that because that in the day of Solomon, namely the innermost parts, the chambers of the belly, were really where your spirit is found. Is it the lamp of the Lord or is it the darkness of Satan? We do that today. How many times does a husband or wife say to the spouse, I love you with all my heart? What does that mean? Why are we saying the word heart there? A heart doesn't love anything. It's part of your body. But in our society, in our culture, it's a way of showing an innermost feeling of love towards someone to love them with all your heart. In Solomon's day, it was the chambers of the belly that was were being searched. In fact, Jesus picks that up through the apostle Paul in Romans 8. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's actually what verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 27 of Proverbs 20 is saying, that the spirit intercedes and knows the mind of man. Verse 28, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Now, that might be one of the few verses that could be understood by the laity, that what preserves the king or what protects the king is his actions of steadfast love and being faithful to his office. In other words, he is not protected by his tyranny, his corruption, or taking someone's blood. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Why does God say that? Because that's how God the Father is preserved, how God the Son continues to preserve God by being steadfast in his love and mercy and his faithfulness. Verse 29 seems kind of obvious. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, once more, you need to look at the original language where it says, the beauty of young men is their strength, but a lot of times they do not use it wisely. How many times do you watch a movie 
and a man is really in glory because he's stronger than a woman and he has more muscles, but he uses it to sway women to do sinful actions. So maybe the beauty of a young man is their strength, but not if he does not use it wisely. In contrast to the splendor of old men is their gray hair. The word splendor can also be translated as glory. Their gray hair indicates their righteousness. That is also the color of the robe in which a Christian wears, white, gray. Then we get to verse 30. This is not understood by anybody. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. What is that talking about? This is why you need a pastor trained in understanding what Solomon is saying here. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Guess what? That wound is what Isaiah 53 verse 5 talks about in regard to the Messiah. In fact, remember what Genesis 3.15 says? That yes, the devil will attack Jesus. Jesus will crush the head of Satan, which means he puts him to death. But what will Satan do? He will bruise the ankle of Jesus. This is a tremendous verse to talk about the theology of the cross. Because blows that wound cleanse away evil. Jesus received blow after blow and it cleansed away your evil. And the strokes he received make clean the innermost parts. We're back up to 27. Remember the chambers of the belly. But at any rate, the blows of the cross cleansed away the evil of human beings. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Verse 30 of Proverbs 20, read it again and again. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check out to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132 or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.